Chapter 7 of A Casket of Cameos This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Bryan Stewart A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borman Robert Lamb's Text Robert Lamb was a very gallant gentleman and a very gallant Australian gentleman at that. In order that his death might not deprive him of the privilege of repeating his text, the text that he had expounded with such delight, first to the savages of the South Seas, and then to the swagmen of Australia, he designed his own tombstone. That tombstone of his is a thing of beauty and a joy forever. It is one of the most eloquent and one of the most pathetic monuments to be found in the Southern Hemisphere. It stands at the corner of a tiny bush-burying place, tucked away among the giant mountains of New South Wales. Yet, by means of that roadside memorial, Robert Lamb goes on repeating his text every day of his deathless life. It is, as Mr. J. A. Packer says, a typical bush cemetery, overrun with weeds and heather, as though no man or woman, much less a sexton, ever gave it a thought. Few visitors to the district go out of their way to inspect it. Fewer still of the many tourists who flash by in motor-cars give it a second thought. Yet hidden away here in the heart of the mountains, swept by the westerly winds, curtained by the enveloping mists, and wept over by the raindrops from the overarching gum-trees, is the resting-place of one of the greatest and best men that this new land has known. If... Fifty years before this bush burial took place, you had stood on the spot that the monument now occupies. You would have seen a pair of tired and travel-stained pilgrims trudging wearily along the dusty road. They are a young man and woman, husband and wife. They are built of that stout stuff of which the pioneers always made. They have ambitions, these two, but their dreams are based on their willingness to suffer and to toil. Their swags are strapped to their shoulders. Attracted by the stories they had heard of the opening of new agricultural areas in New Zealand, they have made up their minds to try their fortunes there. The day of railway trains not yet dawned. There is nothing for it but to trudge their way over mountain and plain to the ship that will soon be sailing from Sydney. But the road seems interminable. They turn the bend where the tomb now stands and begin to climb the hill. Did no strange surge of unaccountable emotion sweep over them, I wonder, as they glanced at that grassy plot beside the road? Did the woman catch her breath? Did the man's heart just for a moment seem to stand still? For they reached New Zealand, these two, and prospered there. There, too, a little boy was born to them. And, fifty years after they dragged their blistered feet along this endless road, that son of theirs, greatly beloved and held in their highest honour, came to these rugged mountains to ask of them a grave. And as his pitiless disease wore him down, his thoughts flew back almost hourly to those two brave pilgrims who, a few years before his birth, had sanctified this dusty road for him by trampling along it in the course of their great and gallant venture. The vision suggested to him the beautiful ministry by which his sunset days were adorned, and it suggested to him 
the means by which he might go on for centuries repeating to every wayfarer his text. 2. If five years before that bush burial took place, you stood on the spot that the monument now occupies, you would have seen two men, engaged in earnest conversation, sitting on a log by the side of the road. The log is there still. A photograph of it lies before me as I write. One of the men is a swagman. His swag is strapped to his shoulders. His billy stands against the tuft of grass at his feet. He is an arresting and picturesque figure. Yet it is not to him, but to his companion, that I wish to direct particular attention. For this is Dr. Robert Lamb, M.A., of the University of New Zealand, M.B., C.H.M., and B.D. of the University of Edinburgh, one of the most cultured, one of the most modest, and one of the most lovable of men. Look at him. Although his consumption is beginning to play havoc with his handsome form, he is still tall, well-knit, and finely proportioned. His face, with its well-trimmed black beard, wore a most beautiful expression, writes one who knew him well. He had earnest hazel eyes, clear and kind, in which a fondness for fun seemed to be perpetually lurking. His forehead was lofty, giving an impression of immense intellectual resources. He was quiet and unobtrusive, his voice soft and persuasive, his step quick, his figure alert, and he himself the essence of gentleness, geniality, and good temper. This, then, is Robert Lamb. What of his story and his text? 3. His story is soon told. The New Zealand farmer's boy, the son of those two travel-worn wayfarers that we saw vanishing over the crest of the hill, early displayed a restless curiosity and an insatiable thirst for knowledge. In studying for his degree, he often wondered what he should do with the learning that he was so toyfully acquiring and with the powers that he was developing in the process. Then, one evening, at a great meeting held in St. Paul's Presbyterian Church, Christchurch, New Zealand, a church that I know well, he heard the Reverend Joseph Copeland plead for men who, at any hazard, would devote their lives to the evangelization of the New Hebrides. Mr. Copeland stirred the boy's fancy, fired his enthusiasm, and awoke in his heart a passionate desire to carry the message of light and life to the untutored barbarians who sat in darkness and in the shadows of death. His resolve lent new zest and significance to all his studies. He went on to Edinburgh, took the divinity and medical courses simultaneously, and, overtaxing his brilliant powers, paved the ways for the malady that hurried him to an early grave. He was nearly thirty when at last he reached the islands. He was appointed to Abram, a position of special peril. The natives had an ugly record, but Robert Lamb embraced the opportunity with unbounded delight. It really seemed, however, as if, from the very moment of his arrival, all things were conspiring to bring about his discomfiture and overthrow. I was privileged to be in close touch with him in those days, says the Reverend A.J. Fraser. What his trials and sorrows were unknown to few, but those few will always remember through what a fiery furnace Robert Lamb passed, and how the nobility of his character shone through it all. Fever distressed him terribly from the very outset. There is so much to be done, he writes, and I must go on as long as my poor legs can trot my hot cranium round.
he drove away his worries with a merry laugh. But like a pack of hungry wolves, they crept stealthily back upon him. Sickness followed sickness, and trouble trod upon the heels of trouble until, in March 1893, the culminating calamity swooped down upon him. A frightful hurricane devastated the island. The mission station was completely wrecked, and his twin boys, Castor and Pollux, as he playfully called them, were killed. He bore his anguish bravely. With a smiling face, he breasted the blows of circumstance and worked night and day to repair the pitiful havoc that the storm had wrought. He won the hearts of natives and missionaries alike. Many a time he rose from his own sick bed at dead of night to tend and alleviate another's pain. By black men and by white, says Dr. Marden, Robert Lamb was greatly beloved. Few will be able to estimate the value of his work in the islands, so great was it. To my knowledge, even to this day the natives regard him as some great soul who had been specially sent down to them straight from the presence of God. The pity of it was that his stay was so brief. What with the cruel climate and the desolating calamities, his health so swiftly undermined. To his unspeakable sorrow, and to the grief of all upon the islands, he was compelled, after a few years' ministry, to bid his South Sea savages a heartbreaking farewell. He came back to Australia to die. 4. The last years of his life were spent at Wentworth Falls, in the Blue Mountains, close to the little cemetery in which we had already seen his tomb. To this day, the people of the place speak of his sojourn there, in the reverential tones in which they would tell of some hallowed and beautiful tradition. Although so pitifully frail, he was the friend of everybody. His kindnesses were countless, and his medical skill was ever at the disposal of the poor. Moreover, it was among these mountains that he imposed upon himself that lovely sunset ministry of his, his ministry to the swagman. The swagman cuts a picturesque figure in the Australian life literature. He is the gypsy of the South. Roderick Quinn has described him. With no companion except, perhaps, a dog trotting at his heels, he trudges up and down road and track and route, through drought and flood, fair weather and foul, from year's end to year's end. Attuned to the vast distances and vast silences in which he moves and has his being, he lives and dreams, indifferent to the clamour of the great, weary, working world which he has left behind. Everybody in Australia knows the swagman. Sitting by the side of the road, watching hundreds of these men go by, Dr. Lamb's thoughts flew back across the years, and he seemed to see that pair of tired pilgrims as, half a century before, they passed this very spot. These men who now tramped their way along the dusty road were just as friendless and just as cheerless as those two wayfarers whose memory was so dear to him. Could he do nothing to make the lives of these wanderers less drab? Sauntering along the road, he came upon the log at the corner of the cemetery and resolved to make it his headquarters. In those days, it lay under the pleasant shade of a fine old tree, which has since been removed to make way for the electric wires. The situation had the advantage of being at the bend of the road. He could see a good distance in both directions, and be prepared worthily to entertain a coming guest. Here, morning by morning, he took up his station, 
waiting for his swagman to approach him. In one pocket he carried a few packets of cigarettes, plugs of tobacco and boxes of matches. The other bulged out with its stock of New Testaments. Whenever a swagman came along the road, the doctor asked him to share his log. Offering him a smoke, he soon engaged his visitor in delightful conversation. The doctor would listen sympathetically to the recital of the swagman's experiences. And then, in his turn, he would electrify and enthrall his companion by describing his own adventures on the islands and at sea. Then, very deftly, the doctor would turn the conversation to still loftier themes. He would present his new acquaintance with a copy of the New Testament, and would read to him the Saviour's gracious invitation to the weary and the heavy laden. For if anybody knows what it is to be weary and heavy laden, the swagman does. For some months, the doctor climbed the hill every morning. Then, his strength slowly ebbing, he engaged a barouche from the village inn to drive into his log after breakfast. But with the aid of a stick, he still managed to walk back to his home in the dusk. Later still, however, he had to engage the barouche for both journeys. And then the stern logic of events forced him to face another problem. It was clear that the old log under the gum tree would soon see him for the last time. How, he asked himself, how could he continue his work when compelled to lie in his bed or in his grave? He had refused to be daunted by a relentless disease. Disappointed in the islands, he had found work to do in the mountains. Why should he permit a premature death to interrupt the program of his life? With splendid daring, he hurled defiance at the powers of death. He challenged the finality of the tomb, and the records show that his audacity was magnificently vindicated. 5. The time soon came when he could not leave his bed. It was then that he asked for paper and designed his tombstone, the tombstone with the text. He ordained that it was to stand at the corner of the cemetery, close to the log on which he had so often sat. It was to be a noble piece of masonry, capable of enduring for centuries. On the east and the west and the south sides of it, there were to be inscribed his name, the names of his twin boys, and several appropriate passages of scripture. But on the north side, the side facing the road, the side that every Parsec swagman would see, there were to be inscribed these striking and impressive words. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my shoulder gear is easy, and my swag is light. My shoulder gear is easy, and my swag is light. Robert Lamb died at forty-five, and his last thought was for the dust-stained and footsore swagman, who, tired of humping his swag, and tired of asking for work, trudged his cheerless way along the endless roads. 6. My shoulder gear is easy, and my swag is light. If ever there was a man whose load seemed too heavy for his bag, and whose shoulders seemed galled by the straps, it was Robert Lamb. But he ridiculed the bare idea. His work was a revelry to him. He fell in love with his savages and his swagmen, and love makes every burden light. We are all fond of the little ragged girl with whom Dr. Guthrie remonstrated. 
She was carrying a boy almost as big as herself. Oh, she laughed. He's not heavy. He's my brother. His own heart aflame with the love of Christ, Robert Lamb really loved his wild Hebridean savages and his rough Australian swagman. And as a natural consequence, love made his shoulder gear wonderfully easy and his swag surprisingly light. Savages, he would say, when people condoled him with... Savages, he would say, when people condoled with him at the having had to labour among such ferocious tribesmen. It's too bad to call them savages. They need knowing, that's all. And he drew a comparison between the men among whom he had laboured in his missionary days and the mountains among which he now lived. To the eye of a tired traveller, he said, these mountains are clad with nothing but gum trees, grey, monotonous, sombre, but that is nature's overall. Live here, and she will fill these vast chasms with heaven's own dyes of amethyst and blue, and lead you by mysterious paths to caves and waterfalls, to nymph-haunted dells and fairy bowers that fill Australian hearts with pride. So is it with the so-called savages, if only you take the trouble to know them. To such a spirit, the yoke is always easy, the burden always light. 7. By means of the tombstone, or, at least, by means of the text on the tombstone, Robert Lamb thought to defy the tranny of the tomb and go on with his work when death had done its worst. Was this strategy successful? Let me close with two stories. 1. Mrs. Lamb now resides in Scotland. A year or two ago she visited Australia and, one beautiful Sunday morning, paid a pilgrimage to her husband's grave. On the stone she found a tin of water containing some wild flowers, neatly arranged. Tied to the flowers was a leaf from a Roman Catholic prayer book. Above the printed prayer was written in pencil, a tribute from a passing swagman. May the Lord have mercy on his soul. Mrs. Lamb reverently folded the paper and took it with her. It is one of her most treasured possessions. It reminds her that her husband is still carrying on his work. 2. Near to the tomb of Robert Lamb is the grave of a little boy. He was so terribly afflicted, both in mind and body, that his poor parents, although feeling for him that peculiar tenderness which such sufferers invariably elicit, were thankful when at last they could lay his tortured frame to rest in this quiet and charming spot. He spent his last summer at Wentworth Falls. Dr. Lamb's tomb acquired an extraordinary fascination for him. He would creep away to the little god's acre, his father tells me, and very laboriously, for hand and brain had lost their cunning, would copy out the inscription from the tombstone. We little thought at the time that he was soon to have a small grave of his own in that bush cemetery. Come unto me, said the saviour, and the studious young New Zealander came. Take my yoke, said the saviour, and the earnest young graduate took it. And he found the straps so easy, and the swag so light, that his only fear was lest the delightful load should in this world or in any other, 
be lifted from his shoulders. End of chapter 7